So the, the book of Psalms has always been the great hymn book for God's people and the great prayer book for God's people. The Psalter functioned as the Jewish book of common prayer uh, before Jesus's day. And in Jesus's day, it was actually Jesus's hymn book, Jesus's prayer book. Praying and singing are not so different, actually, in the Hebrew mind, even if we might think they're different. Throughout church history, up until the last, I don't know, 100 years maybe or so, the Psalms have been read, they've been recited, they've been prayed in continuous cycles. So you may have heard of the, the rule of St. Benedict, uh, one of the monastic movements in the Roman Catholic era of the, the church. Um, participants in worship with the Benedictine monks, they would pray through the Psalter once a week, all 150 Psalms. The Book of Common Prayer that the Church of England's uh, Cranmer and the Church of England published in, in 1552 provides a way to pray through and, and recite all 150 psalms every month. So praying in morning and evening prayer. Calvin and the Reformed churches put the psalms into metrical verse. They set them to music for congregational singing. And... Um, they became so familiar to the average Christian in the pew that they would, uh, merchants would sing them in the marketplace, soldiers would sing them as they marched into war. There are recorded battles in, in the era of the Reformation where uh, both sides are chanting psalms. We might not want to uh, model that exactly, but the fact that they knew the psalms, well, that says something. In his commentary on the Psalms, Calvin wrote, the design of the Holy Spirit was to deliver the church a common form of prayer. Today, however, among many Christians, the Psalms have fallen into disuse, I think. I would venture to say that most of us are not very familiar with the Psalms. Perhaps we could recite a, a few lines from a few of them. Maybe you have uh, Psalm 23, sort of memorized from childhood. But it's unlikely that the Psalms give content or structure to your prayer life. And I guess that those of us who regularly listen to Christian music, if that's something you do, it's probably not the Psalms that are on your yearly, year-end wrap-up playlist on Spotify this year. Maybe you could check. I doubt it. I want to suggest to you this morning that this is an impoverishment to our spiritual life, an impoverishment to our prayer life. It's a loss for each of us as individual Christians and as a church. Surely this is one of the reasons why so many of us struggle to pray. It's because we haven't learned the language of prayer. We don't know how to put the things that we're going through into prayer. And so we don't pray. Or when we pray, it's shallow prayers. We feel like we're repeating ourselves. We're, we're not getting to the heart of matters because our hearts haven't been trained by the Psalms. But the, the Psalms show us how to pray in every circumstance of life. Every emotion that a human can feel, every experience that we can go through is represented in the Psalms. When we have the words of the Psalms in our minds and our hearts, it's a, a sort of divinely authorized 
form of prayer and a, a content to our prayer. And if we learn them and put them into use, we will be enriched by them. Our prayer lives will be enriched. So that's what I intend to help us do in this series in the Psalms over the next six weeks. As we look at a, a psalm a week, we're going to learn how to pray again. And as we come to the end of 2023, and we look forward to the year ahead, my aim this morning from Psalm 2 is to show you a truth that is going to give you confidence to face everything that the year ahead will hold for you, whatever it is. The truth that this psalm teaches us will give us confidence to face it. And it will give you an approach to prayer that is going to transform the way you experience the year ahead if you put it into practice, if you pray with this truth. So let's look at the passage together. We're going to break it into three parts. These headings aren't original to me, but I found them so helpful that I've made them my headings today. There is a king. We hate the king. We need the king. First, there is a king. This year, one of the, the most widely watched events in human history took place at the coronation of King Charles, the, the King of England. Everyone knows that there is a king in England, and many of us watched his coronation. According to the tradition, this psalm was written for just that kind of occasion in ancient Israel, the enthronement of the king. Maybe for David, certainly for his descendants, this sort of psalm would have been sung by the people as a, a hymn for that event. So what was obvious to them as they gathered might be less obvious to us as, as we gather it here. Which is why, although this psalm starts with opposition in verses 1 to 3, I want to start us at the heart of the psalm, verses 4 to 9 which teaches that there is a king. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, says the Lord in verse 6. You see, in the Old Testament book of Samuel, the, the Lord has promised King David that he's going to establish his throne forever and that his descendants would sit on that throne and rule. And so long as the king ruled according to God's law, as long as they, in the words of verse 7, proclaim the decrees of the Lord, the king would enjoy a special relationship to God. They would be like a son to a father. God's people would flourish. They'd be defended from their enemies. They would live in peace and prosperity. They would serve the Lord as they should. A nation always tends to reflect its leaders, which is a scary thought, I think, but it, it's true, certainly in the Bible and in our day, a nation reflects its leaders. And so the kings in David's line, wielding God's authority, are meant to lead the people into the sort of peace and joy that comes from living for the Lord. They're meant to usher in a golden age. And during David's rule, and certainly during his son Solomon's rule, the people did flourish in many ways like never before. It seemed like God's promises were coming true in their reign. 
But very quickly, the kings began to forget the Lord. More and more, with just a few exceptions throughout ancient Israel's history, they, they tried to assert their own authority rather than God's authority. They implemented their own wicked decrees rather than the Lord's decrees. And people began to reflect their wicked leader. That's what always happened. David's grandchildren led the people into a civil war. David's descendants led the people into exile in Babylon. It wasn't until 1,000 years later, after David, that all God's promises to David were fulfilled in the family line of David. Jesus was the long-promised Messiah. That's the the same word translated here as anointed one in verse 2. I've set my anointed one, my Messiah, my Christ. When Jesus began his public ministry, he went out, he was baptized, and the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and God the Father spoke from heaven, saying, This is my Son. Echoing verse 7 from this psalm. According to the New Testament, he was the only begotten Son of God, uniquely begotten. And after his death and resurrection, he ascended into heaven where he is currently reigning at the Father's right hand. As we read read in Revelation a, a few weeks ago, he is the one who rules the nations with an iron scepter. And his kingdom will know no end. He rules now, and he will rule into eternity. And in small ways and large, therefore, in titles and in actions by the, the testimony of God and of men, and by his own testimony about himself, we know that Jesus is God's appointed, anointed. When David and his descendants, they failed to ref- To fulfill their roles, God kept his promise to David through Jesus. Much more so than any enthronement ceremony in ancient Israel, the powerful declaration that God makes in Psalm 2 is fulfilled in Jesus. It applies to Jesus. He will reign forever and ever. This is a psalm about him. So what should the great truth that there is a king do for us? So what, we might think? Well, it should make us bold, and it should make us brave, trusting fully in the supreme authority of God's king. It should make us brave. What might that look like? Well, in Acts 4, we have an example of that. In Acts 4, the authorities in Jerusalem, they captured and imprisoned Peter and John, the apostles, because they were preaching in the marketplace, teaching about Jesus, and and they were causing a stir. And the authorities say, we will let you go if you'll just stop preaching. If you just shut up, you can be free. And how did Peter and John respond to that? They said, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? 
you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. We cannot shut up. We will not. And when they were released, they immediately went out and they prayed the words of Psalm 2. Because there is a king, and it's not the authorities telling us to stop speaking of him. And they asked the Lord, in the midst of persecution, to speak, to help them speak his word with great boldness, knowing that there's a king, should give us bravery. Now, this is what gives countless Christians throughout the world, both today and down through the ages, the confidence to stand up to the powers that be and to say, you will be held accountable for what you do and what you say and the way you rule. Oh, you might have authority at the moment, and I, I honor the authority that you have at the moment, but King Jesus is king over you. You may claim to be all-powerful, but you can't convince me of that. You can't convince Christians of it. Because you know, I know, that you will be accountable to Jesus. It's what gave the confessing church in Nazi Germany the strength to stand up to evil and say, you can kill us, but this regime will be judged. You will be judged by the king. Maybe a little closer to home, because we're not, thankfully at the moment, subject to state persecution as Christians. But this truth should give us courage to stand up to mockery, to derision in our families, in our workplaces, among our friends. You should be able to turn to your boss and say, no, I'm not going to be dishonest for you because Jesus has greater authority than you. No, I'm not going to bend it and to break what God has asked me to do for you. Jesus is my king. We should be able to stand up with boldness, boldness and say to a society that values us based on our financial success, that values us based on our academic achievement, our attractiveness, we should be able to stand up and say, your decrees don't have any authority over me. I am exactly what my king says I am. And we should be able to say to our own desires, our own addictions, you don't control me. I might feel like I can't break free, but that's a lie. Jesus is my king. We can even say to our own suffering, our own hardship, the king is going to use you for my good, for his glory. I don't know how. I can't understand it. But he's going to because he said he will. <laughs> See, there's not one square inch in this world that's outside of the control of the king. Knowing that truth, praying into the world with that truth in mind, should make us utterly bold. 
Nothing will make you bolder than the settled conviction that God's king has been revealed in the flesh, that he's come. Everyone and everything that rages in opposition to him, they simply make the Lord laugh. They're so pathetic. Your empire stands against my church? Your roles, your laws, your society says that what I've said about creation, said about people, said about the world, said about the future are not true? Ah, how, how very silly you are. That's God's attitude. It makes him laugh. They aren't a threat to him. And therefore, we can laugh derisively at all kinds of petty despots. We don't need to cower before them. We can mock sinful rebellion with, with laughter on our lips. We can taunt the forces of evil because our king is on his throne. And yet... Despite the overwhelming evidence of Scripture and of history, God's king faces opposition. That's what we see in this psalm as well. And in verses 1 to 3, we see that we hate the king. We can perhaps better understand the astonished tone of the psalmist because they're at this enthronement. And he says, why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? It's so hard to understand for him. The word translated as plot here, it means to murmur under one's breath. So the people and the nations are depicted as muttering under their breath against God's king. How dare he presume to rule over us? Doesn't he know who we are? We're not going to stand for this. Furthermore, they join forces against the anointed one. The king's of the earth take their sand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The kings of the earth, the rulers, all manner of powerful people stand together against the Lord's anointed one. If it was purely about numbers, there would be no question. The opposition would clearly win. And what is their cry? Why are they opposing him? Verse 3, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. People's hatred for God's anointed king comes down to this, that they don't want to be his servants. Chains and fetters, they're images of slavery. They might also be meant to call to mind the, the sort of yoke they can put on an ox to make him pull the plow. The kings and the rulers of the earth are crying out, We will not be owned like slaves. We will not be put into service like livestock. We're not going to serve and be controlled by this king. Against the one who created them, their claim is, I am my own. I have authority over myself. And here we come to the basic impulse of every human heart. 
I am my own. Take off the chains. I belong to no one but myself. It's the essence of what we all feel by nature. If you have children, or you've been around children, you know this to be true for very early on. You don't have to teach them to rebel. No one has to teach a child to rebel. Most children learn to say no as one of their very first words. No to the parent. And we keep saying no as we grow up. I'm my own. Take off the chains. You know, some people think that if they only had the chance to see Jesus in the flesh, to hear him speak, to, to witness his miracles, they'd be able to accept him as their king. But that's not true. People did see Jesus in the flesh. They did see him perform miracles. And how did they respond? They ran from him. They hit him. They spit on him. They whipped him. They nailed him to a cross. They killed him. Why did they do that? He's the most loving person that ever walked the face of the earth. The most powerful, the most authoritative. Why did they do that? They were saying, take off these chains. I won't be ruled. There is a true king, but we hate him. And some of us might be thinking, you know, that is kind of extreme. Most people don't hate God. People don't conspire and plot against him. They, they might be indifferent. They might disobey him. They don't hate him. But are you sure? Because the Bible's claim isn't that people hate the general concept of God. People don't hate the idea of God. In fact, most people in Hong Kong, most people in the world, they believe that there's a God. They love to worship that God. But it's always a God made in their own image. So the Chinese love Chinese gods that embody Chinese values. The strict hierarchy and the, the filial piety and all the things that embody Chinese society is in their God. And they say, yeah, that is a God worthy of worship. We love that God. Western people love to worship Western gods that embody Western values. So the one that leaves us alone, the one that basically blesses whatever we like, the one that basically agrees with us on politics and, and everything else, we love that God. And materialist people, they worship gods that they can see and touch and hear. Everyone happily worships their God. Some worshiping pleasure, some worshiping money, some worshiping one thing or another. But people don't hate gods. But that isn't the Bible's claim. The Bible's claim isn't that people hate gods in general, it's that people hate the biblical God. The God who thunders from his holy mountains saying, Be holy, because I'm holy. The God that says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
the one who says, I will by no means clear the guilty. And when the biblical God sends his Messiah, his king, what does the anointed one say? He says, anyone who doesn't hate their father or their mother or their spouse or their children is not worthy to be my disciple. And what does that mean? It means that in order to be a disciple of Jesus, we must love him so much that it makes our love for everyone else pale in comparison, look like hatred in comparison. He's saying, I have to be in supreme control of your life. If you're going to be my disciple, I have to be number one in your life. I have to have total control of every aspect of you. That's what Jesus says. That's the God of the Bible. And that's the God that people hate. You might even squirm at the thought of it in your seat, upset that I would, I would pull those things out of Scripture and, and hold them up. You might be thinking, how primitive. I, I could never believe in a God like that. And if that is how you might feel, that is proof of what you say. I could never believe in a God like that. I believe in a God of love. I rest my case. That's the normal human reaction to the God of the Bible. And the Bible says humanity hates the king who claims the end of the earth as his possession. He says, I own you, put on my chains. That's the God that we all by nature reject. But lastly, the psalm is so clear that we need the king. In verses 10 to 12. Because if we know that there is a king, that we can see that we hate the king, then the only way out of the problem is to be persuaded that we need him, that we need the king. So look again at how the psalmist tells us to treat God's king in verses 10 to 12. Serve. Rejoice. Kiss, and you will be blessed. Or refuse to serve, refuse to rejoice, refuse to kiss, and be destroyed in your way. Where we stand in regard to the king will determine whether we are blessed or perish. What the psalmist is saying, therefore, is this. There is no refuge from the king. There is only refuge in the king. There's no in-between. You can see the argument of verses 10 to 12 is that what we fear as oppression is actually an offer of refuge. That his chains, we fear, will confine us, will actually diminish our life if we say, He's my king. I'm going to obey him. We think that's going to diminish our life. But actually, service of the king is perfect freedom. Do you see? The nations conspire and plot and throw off every chain, believing it leads to freedom, when in reality it leads to perishing 
on the way. But those who serve, those who rejoice, those who kiss the king, those who embrace his rule are blessed. His service is perfect freedom. We need the king. Some of us, as we tip over into the new year, uh, we will begin again another year of a Bible reading plan. Many of us have been doing those, and I encourage you to take up a Bible reading plan, whether you can get through the whole of the Bible in a year, or just the New Testament, or some section of the Bible. Have a plan, have a strategy for how you're going to get through God's Word. If you have a plan like that, often the first few days of the new year are spent in Genesis, in the first few chapters. And in Genesis, we're made to reflect something of God's image. We read that we reflect God's image in the world. We're made to reflect God to the world in the way that we work, in the way that we relate to other people, in the way that we show creativity and bring order to chaos. But through sin and rebellion, God's image in us has been tarnished. We fail to live up to the potential that we've been created for. And Adam and Eve sought freedom from God as we seek freedom from God. What we see there is that actually their pursuit of freedom leads to diminishment, to decay to a frustration in life and being destroyed on the way. But when we take refuge in God's king and we see that apart from him we will perish, then we find the potential that we were created for becomes actual. You are actually able to begin to grow and to flourish and to rejoice in life like was never possible before in your rebellion. You begin to live the life that you were created for. Friends, that freedom, that happiness only comes when we turn everything that we are and everything that we have over to God's King. And when we say to him, I'm done raging, I'm done muttering, I want you to rule over me. What's the difference between Christians and non-Christians? Well, Christian is kind of a person that recognizes their hatred for God. That might sound backwards, but it's true. We, we see, I don't want him to rule over me. I can recognize that he has the right to, but I don't want him to. And a Christian says, with that attitude, there's no way I can be reconciled to him unless he reconciles himself to me. Unless the cross of Christ makes it possible. I am utterly dependent on God to save me because I'm utterly unworthy of him. Christian recognizes their hatred and they flee to Jesus as a refuge. So if you haven't 
knelt before the king. Why not make this morning first time? And say a, a simple prayer. There's nothing magic about the exact words, but you could say, King Jesus, you know that I've lived in hatred of you. Now I want to live in submission to you. I want to serve you with fear. I want to rejoice over you with trembling. I want to kiss you. I want to be blessed. So I want to take refuge in you. If you could honestly pray that or something like it this morning, then you really will be blessed. It'll be the beginning of a glorious new chapter of life. But most of us are Christians already. Maybe we've been following Jesus for decades at this point. I want you to go into the year ahead, seeing the world as it is. Seeing the world as Psalm 2 says it is. Every nation is his inheritance. Every person to the ends of the earth is his possession. As you see the people on the bus, or in the mall, or at work, think, King Jesus is their king. He wants them to come to him. He owns them. How are these people going to find refuge in him? How are these people going to know that his service is perfect freedom. How will they know that the one that they rebel and rage against is salvation and peace? When we really believe that the world is, as this psalm says it is, Christ's possession, we will be compelled to pray. I spoke to some people uh, last week who were saying, we used to watch the news every morning, but over the last month or two, we've had to stop because it's just too overwhelming. It made us walk into the day just feeling like we couldn't bear it. I don't think that's a bad decision, but what if the news was a prompt for us to pray and say, Lord, that is your people in a war there. That is your people being oppressed there. What if we turned every item of news over to air? What if we brought every decision and every plan before him in prayer this year? We would pray for other people to be conquered by him. We would pray as though he had the authority that he has. And we'll pray asking him to let us be part of his work on earth. Let us be part of his kingdom. So as we close, I want to invite you to pray Psalm 2 this week. Apply it to the raging you see around you, to the raging you see within you, maybe. I don't know what's going on in your hearts this week, but let it drive you to the anointed king. There's no refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. Before we turn to pray this morning, 
I'd love to invite you to sing Psalm 2 with me. So this setting for Psalm 2 is from the Genevan Psalter, 